Hello and welcome to Grow Up Summer School, an APG Canada podcast where we give strategic thinkers and creative tinkers opportunities to grow. I'm your host, Michelle Lee, and this week on the show, we are launching our Masterclass series. Every day this week, we'll be dropping one new episode each day to give you even more opportunities to grow from some of our industry's most renowned planners. Today, we're catching up with Andy Nern, founding partner at Lucky Generals and author of Go Luck Yourself, who will be sharing his top five tips on how to make luck happen. Just before we dive in, we'd like to give a special shout out to the team at Forsman and Vodenfor for sponsoring today's episode. As one of Canada's leading supporters of strategic planning, they've shown a keen interest in continuing to help us foster and strengthen Canada's strategic talent. And for that, we thank you. Now let's get into the show. I'm, uh, I just say, I'm, uh, I've got an agency called Lucky Generals uh, over here in London, um, where we're, I guess, one of the, the sort of leading, you know, um, creative agencies over here. We're sort of pretty much always up there for agency of the year there or thereabouts um and we've also got a little outpost in new york uh, and before that i worked um mostly in london with a little a little burst in um in san francisco at goodby silverstein um but um yeah about 25 30 years in uh, as, a, as a strategist and you know i really still love getting my hands dirty and working you know uh, on briefs uh, um I, I much prefer that to doing any sort of highfalutin um, sort of uh, industry or or agency stuff. So I'm a, a, still a planner at heart. Um, and I wrote this book um, uh, during the lockdown um, because I sort of, uh, I found it really interesting, this whole idea of luck, um, mostly how unlucky we've been over the last couple of years. I find myself thinking a lot about that, uh, as I'm sure we all have had a few dark moments. Um but then I started thinking about um, all the other different sort of social and cultural aspects of luck and how it had impacted on my life and on my job um, and on all the briefs I'd worked on. And I started, you know, doing a little bit of research into it, really. And, and that's really what the book is all about, how we can, as you say, how you can stack the odds in your brand's favor if you're working on a brief. Yeah. And I love how you, you know, talk in the book about how, you know, specifically in, in Western cultures, there's been a taboo around luck. Can you can you talk a bit more about that? Yeah, that was the thing that I found really interesting because nobody really talks about it, um, do we? I mean, I, I sort of found a great stat that only um, 2% of management um, books ever mention the idea of luck, which seems crazy when I'm sure if all of us are being honest, we will probably admit that occasionally along the road, you know, we've uh, encountered a bit of luck. And the reason that, the, that we don't talk about it in the West, and it is very much a Western thing, is the Victorians had this sort of really weird thing um, about the, the sort of Protestant work ethic um, and the idea that if you were uh, rich, uh, that meant that you, you'd you basically worked really hard and God had smiled upon your endeavours. And if you were poor, uh, that was your own fault because you hadn't worked hard enough. And so the answer to everything was just, you know, work harder. And the thing I see in the book is that that sounds like a boring old history lesson. You're thinking, why, why am I even talking about that sort of stuff? Um, but I think it that really colours a lot of, the way that Western working practices are promoted. And you can see it right now, you know, after the you know pandemic, you know, the answer to everything is just like, oh, we've all got to work harder and sit at your desk for longer and come into the office and, you know, work in that very conventional sort of style. And I feel like, you know, surely we've learned that there are smarter ways to work, not just, it's not just about slogging away for that extra, um, you know, hour at your desk sort of thing. Um, but that that is the Western sort of, um, you know, the thing that we've probably all heard many times is that old adage um, that the harder you work, the luckier you get. And um, 
it's sort of true up to a point. You know, obviously we've all got to hard, work hard and I'm sure everyone listening to this is working harder than ever right now. But um, I feel like there's got to be more to it than that. And and it's not as simple as just to say that, um, you know, the hard work is the, the answer to everything. Do you, I'm curious whether you think there's any kind of connection between luck and randomness. Um, and the reason I ask that is I find specifically as strategists, oftentimes you're making uh, connections between seemingly unrelated things, or you can often get inspired by something that seems like it's not maybe directly linked uh, to what you're doing. I find actually some of my best ideas will come from listening to some random podcast or watching some show that has absolutely nothing to do with this specific problem I'm working on, but it somehow inspires me in a different way. Yeah, I think that's exactly, that is one of the four big sort of uh, overarching themes in the book is this idea that um, you can find luck, you know, in all sorts of different aspects of life. And and this is why this kind of Western hang up about it being all about hard work doesn't really work because sometimes you're better to put your laptop away and go for a walk around the park and be inspired by nature or go to an art gallery and, you know, something will make you think of something unusual, you know, in that context or watch sports or, you know, any of these things, religion, music, psychology, science, um, or, you know, just spend time with your family or whatever. There's, there's all, all the sort of regular and other sort of diverse aspects of life are things that make you better as a strategist beyond just literally slogging away and staring at the brief that you've been given. And I think it's interesting what you say about random, these random connections. We can kind of just sit back and, you know, hope that those things happen to us. But what I've tried to sort of argue in the book is that you can actually increase your chances of them happening by deliberately, you know, making them happen by deliberately trying to collide random things together um, or sort of ring fence time in your day when you're going to try things like that, you know, rather than just sort of hoping that, you know, you will stumble over some stuff. You can actually force the stumbles. Or, or maybe it's even a collision of random people uh, sometimes. I mean, we talk a lot about collaboration uh, in this business. Um, but I, I find sometimes, uh, you know, obviously, you know, you must find this too, c- c- chatting with other people about the problem. So again, sometimes people completely unrelated can spark an idea. Totally. So many of the great ideas are, you know, somebody just walking past your desk and who's not working on a brief and they might lean over your shoulder and sort of say, oh, that's interesting. Have you thought about this? And, um, you know, we, we've had loads of examples of that. And, you know, if, if I look at People like, you know, Steve Jobs, you know, he used to design buildings, didn't he? I think he's quite well known for designing um, Apple and Pixar buildings so that people would have those sort of water cooler uh, conversations. Um, and I, I love the fact that, is, that, that that's there's a democratic aspect to that as well. I and mean, we, we had a great example on when we were working on a Super Bowl brief. We've sort of been lucky to work on about four or five of them for Amazon over the last few years. And... Um, our creative director was chatting away to an operations guy. So not a creative person, not a planner, um, not somebody who was even really working on this brief, but they were just chatting about a bunch of stuff. And Danny was the creative telling him um, about uh, this brief to make um, Alexa, you know, give her more of a human personality or make people, you know, see the technology um, as something, you know, with more of an emotional aspect rather than just this kind of cold voice technology. And um, as we're having this sort of chat, you know, this guy, Nick, the operations guy was kind of saying, yeah, it's, it's interesting. I've just been watching the Little Mermaid 
you know, the, the, the Disney video, the Hans Christian Andersen story with, with uh, my daughter. And, and they got talking about this whole, you know, the storyline where um, the little mermaid uh, loses her voice. And they did this random conversation about, wouldn't it be funny or interesting if Alexa lost her voice? Uh, and it became, you know, the smash hit of that Super Bowl that was voted the number one um, ad by the American public. And that, that wouldn't have happened if we were all just working in silos and sort of, you know, focused very strictly on the brief that we'd been set. That was a kind of a, you know, a lovely, random, serendipitous conversation. Yeah, I mean, it reminds me that, that you, you talk, I think, about um, uh, working on a tea brand in the UK and, uh, you know, sometimes clients and agency folks as well, we get so close to a problem uh, that it's hard to kind of see the the forest for the trees. Um, that sometimes maybe people having a bit of distance uh, from it or not being so invested in it uh, can see the way forward. Yeah, I think that that's um, maybe sort of, is that Taylor's Coffee Bags. We, we work with a lovely company called it's Yorkshire Tea and they also make Taylor's Coffee Bags and we work on both and they're, they're fantastic um, people. And and they, they came to us with a brief about um, these coffee bags where um, they were very excited because... Um, they, you know, they spent ages, you know, trying to make coffee bags, and there's, there's lots of very boring, functional, practical reasons why that is a lot harder to do than making tea bags. So when they managed to get a, a coffee bag that had a lovely taste, um, they were, you know, as you can imagine, super excited, and we were really excited, and everybody that was on the team was going up and down to their offices and, you know, looking at the factory and. Um, finding out how about amazing they were. But when we sort of came back down to the creatives, quite a young team, they were completely nonplussed. And actually they just sort of said, yeah, but isn't it just tea bags with coffee in it? And it, it really sort of um, sort of uh, rained in our parade sort of thing. They were absolutely not excited by this at all. And but eventually we sort of, we couldn't get away from this reaction of theirs because every time we went back to them, they just kind of said, yeah, but it's, so obvious, isn't it? Why, why haven't they thought of this before? And actually, they, to their great credit, the, the creatives kind of said, I think there's an idea in this, almost m- making fun of ourselves about what's taken us so long. And the client actually came around to it too. And we sort of worked in this idea together. And it, basically the line is the least sort of uh, launchy line ever. It's, you know, um, uh, why didn't uh, we think of this before? Um, and we just had lots of fun with that sort of, coming up with all sorts of silly reasons why um, we hadn't thought about this um, over the years of history. Um, but it's a, a, I suppose the bigger sort of lesson out of it is, yes, yeah, speaking as someone who's not as involved in a brief can be a lovely way to get a bit of grounding and objectivity because like, we all make that mistake of getting uh, really uh, too close to the detail of a brief and we forget that most people are not really interested in the thing that we're working on in the real world. And Sometimes we need that little reality check. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Great. Well, I mean, this seems like a, a, a good place to start. I mean, uh, y- your five tips, we're keen to hear them. Maybe we'll start with the first one, how to make luck happen. Oh, God. Well, I think the first one is um, appreciate what you got. Um, like, I think a lot of brand challenges uh, come down to almost the answer that's staring you in the face, but nobody's appreciated. So, so many different things where it's uh, a brand's history or its provenance or its data 
or they might have a symbol or an icon or a graphic device that they've never exploited before, or they might have never really thought about their name before. You know, so many, you know, amazing assets are just overlooked by companies. Um, and I think the job of an agency often is to go in there and a good strategist might pluck something out that's sort of almost like hiding in plain sight. Um, and it's it's a case of sort of blowing the dust off that and kind of saying, wow, I can't believe you've never done anything with this before. Um, you know, you need to appreciate how lucky you are to have that particular asset. So there's a whole bunch of stories and tips about appreciating what you got. Um, and, I so I was going to say, how have you used that um, at Lucky Generals? Can you give us an example of that? Well, a good example of that was um, something like, um, well, uh, there's, a, there's a brand called Hovis, which is, um, is a really well-known bread brand in, in Britain. Um, and it, but it's also sort of a, a sort of a, almost like a byword for old fashionedness. So when we started working on it, we were told that the last thing you should do is talk about this brand's history because it's it's really well known for um, you know literally black and white advertising from the nineteen seventies. And um, you know if you say someone's got a Hovis point of view on life, that means that they've got an old fashioned view, a nostalgic view of life. So so that you know that that brand was trying to do you know cartoon families and kind of South Park kind of you know sort of animation and um, all sorts of, you know, screaming how modern it was. And, uh, but it was tanking. It was doing really badly. And, and we kind of figured, you know, you've got this amazing history. You've been around for 120 odd years and, you know, they've donated Spitfire planes to the war effort and done all sorts of amazing things over the years. Why can't we just sort of um, dig a little bit into your, your archives and celebrate that history, but in a way that, um, you know, chimes with modern Britain? And, and we, to his great credit, we had a great uh, marketing director that said, yeah, okay, we're desperate, you know, do whatever you want. And, um, by appreciating how lucky they were to have that history, we, we created a brilliant, you know, a, a story. The line was, um, as good today as it's always been. So it wasn't backwards looking. It was sort of, it started off in the past, but it brought it right up to date and it really the, the centerpiece of it was a, a huge telly ad. So it's kind of conventional to that degree, but it was a lovely story of a, a boy running through history with a loaf of bread that he bought in a, a shop in Victorian times. He runs through the two world wars. He runs through the blitz, through the, you know, the, the onset of immigration, through England winning the World Cup, uh, through the miners' strike, through the millennium, and, you know, ends back up in a, a modern um, kitchen, putting the loaf on the table for his family. Uh, and the line comes up, it's good today, it's always been. And that was voted the British public's favourite ad of the decade it ended up on the curriculum you know they, they did a video of it to sort of teach kids about to use it to teach kids about the history of the last 120 years um and it sort of really turned that brand around it was it was one of the most effectiveness uh, biggest effectiveness case studies for for years as well um but that was only because someone appreciated that actually if you've got a backstory that that makes you lucky um whereas a lot of companies are almost inhibited about talking about the history because they think they're going to end up looking old fashioned. Yeah, I think that's a really good point um, because you, you explain it really simply, but it, I think there's a lot of finesse and, and nuance uh, to getting that balance right, um, almost an elegance, because I, I do think that is the um, 
argument or fear that comes up from from clients is it's simply just going to reinforce how old we are. We're already dusty. We don't want to go back to that. So I, I think you found a really elegant way to, to do that with Havas. Yeah, thanks. And, and actually, as you know, sometimes it's not, that's a slightly more literal example of it, I guess, where where we did show some of the history. But of course, sometimes you can just by learning about the history, none of that has to end up in the communication. Sometimes it's just the spirit of it and, and you, you're completely set in the present day, but you're, you're repurposing or reinventing something, you know, that, that has, um, that gives it a little bit of truth and authenticity, I think as well. You know, I think people like it when the, it feels like the idea has got some roots rather than you've, you just sort of having it, you know, plucked it from nowhere. Yeah, you know, it reminds me actually, as you say that, sometimes it's about the the tone or the attitude, the the passion even maybe of the original founder, whoever had exactly. the idea. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think that's that's a whole, you know, a s- strand of that. And then, um, so, I mean, the second one is kind of what we just talked about earlier, this idea that there's, you know, these random connections are everywhere. Um you know, you can learn or find insights all over the place in different spheres of your life. And that's why I always encourage everyone to um, to sort of, you know, ha- have a full and interesting and diverse life with lots of hobbies, um, you know, and interest because you just never know when they're going to come and sort of help you. And actually, I like, I like it when you sort of deliberately create those connections, like I say, those random things like, um, I don't know if you know the the singer Tom Waits, he, he uh, puts two radios on at the same time and then he, he has them on different stations and then he, he listens out for interesting clashes of genres or you know, harmonies or lyrics or things that don't go together normally. Mm. Um, and then that often sparks a new thought. And I feel like we can all learn a lot from that, like you said, about uh, colliding, you know, deliberately colliding these things from different parts of our life together and seeing where they take us. So mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's always a sort of a, a good sort of uh, direction to move down. Mm-hmm. And and does that happen in kind of a, a, a random way? I'm curious at, at Lucky Generals or in your approach or, or have these uh, ever, ever been built in? I mean, I know sometimes we would do, for example, starting on a new project, almost like a unlearning day, like almost, you know, highlight all your, your biases and assumptions up front, get, get those all out. Um, and then you can kind of start with the, with the fresh slate. Um, yeah, yeah I, I think that's, I think that's right. Um, I, I think it's, you know, we've mentioned a couple, I guess a couple of the examples we've talked about already are, you know, talk to someone who knows nothing about mm. your category, which is yeah. in our case, we talked to this young creative team that didn't really have it, any knowledge of this coffee project. Um, talk to the operations guy about your brief on Alexa, who yeah. knows what, what what might happen there. Um, and, you know, or, or take a view on science or, you know, you can take any one of those different sort of areas of life and think, well, what would, what would happen if I looked at it through this lens? One of the, one of the funnest things we worked on right in the beginning was in our first year of Lucky Generals was we um, we worked on Kahlua. If you remember Kahlua, this is kind of one of those mm, drinks the from our, yeah from our misspent youth, isn't it? We've all had those yeah. <laughs> of dodgy cocktails, and without going into all the details of it, the big unlock there was remembering that they had a connection with the world of cult film because they were in the big Lebowski 
um, and the dude, the character, the dude, um, he drinks these white Russians. And anyway, the, the point was we, we looked at this at, at the time it was a, it was a pretty terrible pack, um, with awful sort of 1970s writing and everything about it looked terrible. Nobody could work out where this brand came from. Was it, you know, what was it for starters? It's like a mixture of Russian, uh, of coffee and, uh, rum. Um, and where is it from? Some people guessed it was from Hawaii or, um, Asia or, um, you know, Africa perhaps. And it's actually from, um, Mexico. Um, and so it was just this really weird mishmash of things. And they, they were wanting to sort of streamline the product design and the, the packaging. And, and actually we sort of said, no, I, you should keep it. And it is like a cult film, like a cult film director would embrace those ugly clashes of styles and, um, and make them cool. And we referenced Tarantino and said Tarantino would love this packaging because it looks a bit retro, a bit, a bit of a mishmash of you know he he might do a a, a Korean cowboy movie meets some sort of um, you know sort of uh, music from another part of the world. He, he sort of deliberately mashes all these sort of genres together, and so the brief, literally the opening line of the brief um, for Kalua was what would Tarantino do if he ran this company. Um, and that led to a series of really cool and interesting sort of riffs off all their cocktails because all their cocktails sounded like these great B movies, like you know the the White Russian or the um, you know Mudslide or um, uh, uh, sort of um, Brain Freezer and all all sorts of uh, other sort of cool sort of um, sounding cocktail names that also could have been cool uh, cult films. And so just looking at a brand from a different angle like that can inspire lots of uh, new ways to to think about it, I think. Great. Terrific. Um, let's go on to your tip number three. Tip number three. Well, that's sort of an extension problem. I think tip number three is that one way to make sure that you've got diverse people uh, or diverse ideas in your, in your life is to have a diverse team. And obviously there's like been a huge amount of discussion quite rightly about um, you know the ethical reasons for having a diverse team, which are you know first and foremost you, you know it's just the right thing to do, but it's also just a complete no-brainer um, when it comes to generating ideas because that's another way of you know deliberately increasing your chances of, to have those interesting collisions. You know because you're, you're having different people come up with ideas from different backgrounds and experiences. Um, and one of the things I do when um, I'm doing some sort of training on this or, you know, talks and so on, is I repeat a, a, an experiment that was done by an, a university in Texas where they get people to draw aliens. Um, and uh, they ask people to draw an alien from a faraway country. Um, and virtually everybody, you know, we're talking 95, 96% draws exactly the same kind of alien. Mm. And, you know, they've all got, um, you know, arms and legs and, or tentacles and, you know, um, you know, basically sensory organs and limbs and things that we can, you know, very much recognize as an alien. Um, and there's hardly any disparity between the way that we draw aliens. And they've done it all over the world because all cultures, you know, have this kind of shared sense of what an alien is. And the kind of serious point that they make out of that and I make is that, you know, the, the human brain is rubbish at coming up with completely new ideas from scratch. Mm. So what we do is we go back to the thing that we have some sort of experience of. And, and in this case, we have all got the same experience. We've all watched the same movies. There's no real cultural overlay on aliens. Um, 
And so we come up with the same thing. And that, that is what happens in a team. If you have a team of homogenous people, you know, from the same background, they're all going to come up with the same idea. Um, so, you know, of course the ethical argument is the most important one for having a diverse team, but it's, it's just commercially stupid as well, not to, uh, and creatively stupid, not to have a diverse team too. Yeah, this is the story of the faster horse. It reminds me of the, the focus group. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, no, exactly. Car, yeah, <laughs> that that's right. That's all we can sort of all we can imagine. Um, so I, I like I like um, you know those sort of stories and those kind of getting people thinking about diversity f- as an opportunity rather than you know as this sort of challenge that it's sometimes framed as. Um, so that's that's number three. Um, and, and sorry, if I could just interject, uh, it reminds me as well, because I know that um, from what I understand, the, the royalties of your book are going to actually help uh, people break into the industry to provide some diversity. Is, is that right? Can you talk yeah, about actually, that? Yeah, actually, very good point. I should have said that. Terrible. I forgot that. But um, yeah, all the um, all the royalties are going to an organization that helps working class um, talent get a lucky break. You know, I like the idea of, you know, I feel like I'm your classic white, old, straight, able-bodied bloke. You know, and I have been lucky just because of my demographics. You know, Warren Buffett talks about, you know, winning the ovarian lottery, which I think is a great phrase. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like I've won that just because of my demographics. And and so I wanted to put a little bit back into this, you know, community and help people who obviously find it harder. So, um, yeah, every single penny of the royalties uh, goes to this really good organization. And, and it's it's lovely because it makes a real difference to, um, you know, they update me on how this money is being spent. And it's for things as, you know, that seem as small to me as, you know, um, uh, transport across London to get a, to a job interview or a new hard drive or um, a course on improving their animation skills and all, all sorts of things that perhaps somebody like me might take for granted, but it's a useful reminder that, you know, lots of people are, you know, amazing talents are prohibited from getting into our industry just because of their demographic. And so um, they need a little bit of luck as well. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I like that, uh, how you've closed that that loop. That's really nice. Um, all right, well, shall we move on? Yeah, well, the number four is sort of the kind of counterintuitive one, I guess, which is turning bad luck into good luck. Like I feel like a lot of the best briefs are rooted in, you know, disaster or crisis or a flaw or, um, you know, some sort of a taboo, you know, or a myth or, you know, things that on paper look like they're a really bad start to your brief can turn out to be the thing that makes it interesting. Um, And so I always advise people to like run towards that bad luck and see whether you can turn it into good luck. Um, and I guess we've all worked on stuff like that. Probably, you know, the simplest is is where you have a, a low budget. And, and at first, a small budget, you know, we all moan about it and sort of uh, complain. But, but sometimes that can be the very thing that forces you to think more creatively. Um, so that limitation becomes sort of liberating. Um, and the same with deadlines as well, you know, we might moan about not having much time and then the very fact that we've not got much time might force us to come up with something more interesting. So, um, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in the book about finding ne- energy and negative stuff that you can turn into something, you know, joyful, whether that's something as, you know, 
visceral hate. You know, we've done work before where we've taken hate speech and turned that into something lovely or, um, you know, a product flaw or, um, or jokes as well, I think, you know, can be interesting. Nasty jokes. Um, <laughs> one of the things I do is when I, when I get a brief is I look up, um, I look the brand up in nastiest sort of bitchiest parts of Twitter or Reddit um, or, or I might put in the brand's name into Google Images to have a look at cartoons. Basically looking for what are the filthiest, nastiest things that people say about this brand when when you're not there, because that's what people are saying about you when you're not in the room. And and a joke only works if there's an element of truth to it. So sometimes that can uncover a little kernel of truth. And it's that old thing that if people are already saying that about you, maybe it's better if you say it first and make a joke about it first or rebuff it first, um, turn it on its head. Um, and... You know, our natural human instinct is to brush over all that kind of stuff and we don't want to hear about it. We just want to ask the client what are their selling points and their unique benefits and all the good stuff about it. But I I think we should also try and have a really honest conversation about what the what the bad stuff is and what the, the, the jokes are and the hate that this brand might get and see if we can uh, turn that around. It's interesting. You know, when you said your first tip, appreciate what you got, I kind of wrote and what you don't got, which kind of yeah. feels a little bit like this. And it reminds me, I mean, the, the most obvious example that, that comes up, it, I mean, we don't have this product here, but Marmite yeah. um, and, and everything that they've done. And I guess one of the pushbacks or fears that you sometimes hear is, well, you know, is this going to be too polarizing? We want to get more kind of mass adoption or affinity with this brand. But you know, that, that can sometimes lead to, to vanilla. Um, I think I, I do like your idea of kind of, you know, if people are already saying it, then you might. That's, as well the, thing. that's, that's the thing. Um, you know, comedians are good at that. You know, if, if comedians are, 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 a lot of comedians have talked about this sort of thing that when they go on stage, if they, if they know that they've got something a bit quirky about them, like they're like, let's say they're, uh, they're bald, um, or they're, you know, they're a bit overweight or they're, you know, they're, I don't know, they're, um, they've got a funny accent or they've got terrible teeth or whatever it is, you know, they're going to make those jokes first and about themselves in a way that's far funnier, that, that sort of scorches the earth for anyone else heckling them. And because they kind of know that everyone's thinking this. So um, I'm going to get in there in front of them and make a big deal of it. I mean, there's a great example of Dolly Parton, um, she used to say that she had written all the best Dolly Parton jokes are written by Dolly Parton. Um, and she used to play up to all those kind of stereotypes in a way that was like brilliant and sort of empowering um, for for her um, and just gave her ownership of that whole sort of conversation. But as you say, a lot of brand teams are worried about drawing attention to the the thing but they, they forget that people are already talking about the thing or thinking about the thing. Um, so sometimes you're better to just recognize it and sort of deal with it somehow. Lean in. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay, great. So I've got uh, your, your first tip, appreciate what you got. Number two was um, kind of identify or appreciate the random connections that are everywhere. Number mm-hmm. three was leverage a diverse team. Number four, bad, turn your bad luck into good luck. What's your, what's your fifth and final tip? I think the fifth one would be practice being lucky. 
which um, might sound like an oxymoron, um, but I think um, it goes back to this thought about uh, not just working hard, but sort of ring fencing a bit of time in your day for lucky stuff to happen, not just waiting for it to come to you. And so my my sort of um, reference point here that I like is the great record producer, Quincy Jones, who is kind of the most successful record producer of all time, but he he's, and he's very hardworking, so he properly is. That's why I, I always have to emphasize that this isn't an alternative to hard work. We'd, we still have to work hard and we still have to be talented and all the rest of it, but, but you also do need a bit of luck. And he sort of works really hard, but then he leaves 20% of the time in any project to just experiment and you know, try new stuff out. And he calls that letting the Lord walk through the room. And he's got on his wall in the studio in big letters, let the Lord walk through the room. And I really like that. I feel like ring fencing a bit of time and energy and money to let the Lord walk through the room is where the, the best, you know, where, where the best briefs become brilliant and the best work becomes brilliant. Um, you know, uh, it's where you sort of, it's where you deliberately want lucky stuff to happen rather than try and exclude it. Like a lot of the time we're trying to almost keep the Lord locked out of the room. I feel like in, in, uh, the marketing process, you know, the only time that anyone mentions luck usually is let's leave nothing to chance. Let's not leave, you know, this down to luck. Let's control this situation. Let's have a, not just a pre-prod meeting, but a pre-pre-pre-prod meeting. And, you know, it's that kind of um, locking down all the thinking. Uh, and, and I feel that you should do all the thinking and the robustness and the, you know, the rigor, but then just cut yourself a bit of slack and allow some unexpected stuff to happen. Um, otherwise you're just going to get something completely expected and it's going to be the same thing comes out the other end of this sort of sausage factory that you anticipated when you put it in, in the first place. And I find that's always disappointing. Yeah. It reminds me of, you know, the traditional creative brief, um, with the single minded proposition and how we're kind of disciplined to become so reductionist in our thinking. I mean, obviously you go out and you do all the exploration and there's the rigor behind that, but at some point you're meant to kind of boil it all down and synthesize it to something. But I've always loved even just, you know, you sneak them in there, put in like a thought starter section uh, at the end, because maybe that opens it up a little bit more. And as you say, you know, brings more of the randomness back a little bit. Yeah, I, I definitely, I do that. And I, and I think you've got to have humility as a planner that you might not have cracked it or that you you might just be providing a bit of inspiration for someone else to crack it in a more interesting way. And we shouldn't treat briefs as contracts. That's this big bugbear of mine that, you know, sometimes we, you know, when the work comes back and it's not exactly on brief, you can either sort of stamp your feet and say, this isn't on brief, you know, this is off brief and uh, get cross about it. Or you can sort of have a bit of humility and kind of think, well, is it better though? You know, because it, it feels ridiculous that if someone's come to a better place, you know, why why would we ignore that? You know, why would we turn up our nose at this this lucky stumble if someone stumbled over a more interesting way to, to handle the brief sort of thing? Um, so, so yeah, I, I sort of feel the briefing is just a starting point as a springboard. Um, if that takes someone else off course a little bit and it gets you to a more interesting place, you should embrace that and then um and then you should work backwards. 
And incidentally, this, this what, what another thing is that um, people then sort of say, well, that's very unscientific and very, um, it's post-rationalization, isn't it? That's kind of, you just stumbled over, a, it wasn't that what the brief said and you just stumbled over something and then worked your way backwards. But that is literally how science works, isn't it? Like, I mean, basically every big discovery in science from Archimedes in the bath and uh, old uh, Isaac Newton under the apple tree and um, you know, uh, uh, Alexander Fleming and his Petri dish, you know, th- they've all involved people making a stumble and then realizing the significance of it and and then working their back way backwards uh, to turn it into something great. And we, we don't kind of look at Isaac Newton and sort of say, well, he was a bit of a, you know, he was a bit lucky. He wasn't really looking for the apple or gravity and he, he just stumbled over it and we sort of recognized there was some skill there. And I think so many of the best ideas and briefs have been things that we've stumbled over and and then worked backwards from, and that's still okay. You know, ideas, strategy doesn't always work in this perfect sort of linear forward way, I don't think. Yeah, so to me, practice being lucky almost sounds like a, a, a disposition that you have. Like it sounds like you're 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 more open, you're, you maybe have um, a, a more positive perspective because it allows you to then make connections between things that may seem disparate. You're, you're agile, you're able to pivot and let things breathe. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a really nice way to look at it. I didn't really thought about that disposition. It's just being less uptight about your own brief and your own role and you're insisting that you're controlling everything that that's why people are scared about luck fundamentally you know there's a that big cultural piece about hard work and then there's just a sort of a human thing where the word luck sounds scary and random because we like to control things um but you know in all sorts of other aspects of our life we we like luck because it's surprising and exciting and um unpredictable and i just feel like we should bring a bit more of that to our work you know especially in a given that we all work in a creative industry where when when the work becomes predictable that's a bad thing isn't it i mean i always i always feel i don't know if you feel this but when you get when you get work back from a brief and it is exactly as you imagined it would be Mm. that's always a bit of a disappointment isn't it Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. no i feel like it's always much more interesting if it's gone off at a little tangent um, because that, that means that somebody else has added something cool and interesting to it. Yeah. And that's why it's always interesting to look at, you know, other categories or, I mean, all sorts of things for inspiration. We kind of started our conversation talking about. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, because we're so, because again, this obsession with hard work, we're all, we've all got our heads down and we're focused on the task at hand. We, we're not looking out for these look, lucky opportunities because we're, if we're in the automotive business, we're we're thinking about the automotive business, but we don't realize that maybe the best thing we can do for that car brand is to, um, you know, look at dog food or, um, you know, some other sort of completely unrelated category and, and see if there's an interesting connection that could be made there. You know, because creativity so much of the time is about these making these, as you said, right at the beginning, these kind of unusual, serendipitous, unexpected connections between one part of the world and another. Um, and as I say, you can you can either hope that you'll make them or you can sort of make a bit more of a conscious effort to do it. That's, I think, what the book is really about. It's making us more... Con- we probably do all of this on a good day. We've all probably 
put briefs in that that do this, you know, sort of instinctively. But I'm kind of saying that we can concentrate and be a bit more conscious of it, and and that'll sort of improve our strike rate. Yeah, it, it strikes me as we're talking about kind of luck and hard work, and you know, are, are they contradictory or are they additive? It, it 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 kind of describes your your name, the name of your agency, Lucky General. And yeah, I think of when I think about generals, I think of them being hardworking and there being obviously a lot of rigor and seriousness and 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 that there. And then luck kind of being the antithesis of that. It reminds me of another agency that that talked about it as in terms of like measured magic, having a bit of rigor there. But allowing for some uh, magic, luck, randomness, whatever it may be. Yeah, that's good. Do you know what I mean? It's funny that the weird thing, genuinely, is that um, we didn't really pay much attention to when we chose the agency's name. We just liked the sound of it because it sounded a bit cool and interesting. And funnily enough, my my creative partner Danny, he he had a band as, as a teenager. He, he wanted to call the band uh, Lucky Generals. And the the others wouldn't let him, so it was like, I think it was like a frustrated teenage <laughs> rock dream. And then it's it's not quite as cool to call an ad agency that, but anyway, we didn't really think about it very much. And and that was sort of why I wrote the book as well, because I was I found myself thinking, God, this is a bit embarrassing. There's there's something in this idea of luck. I'm finding myself thinking a lot about luck because of the pandemic, and we're all feeling a bit unlucky. And then a lot because of this whole idea of privilege that I talked about, and you know, actually thinking, God, I am quite lucky in lots of other ways. Luck seems to be this big force in life that's a taboo, um, and and I thought, God, and even even though we've got an agency with it in our name, we never talk about luck. We never we never really explored it before. So that's what really attracted me to to thinking about it. So I, I almost sort of wrote the book despite having an agency called Lucky Generals, rather than because of it. If you know what I mean. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I also like, I mean, I know you have won a ton of IPAs, and there almost seems to be an oxymoron between luck and effectiveness too, but, um, you know, given all the rigor that goes into to writing those in those cases. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting when you start to kind of dissect that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think again, if you, what I find interesting, especially that first section, I appreciate what you've got. So many of the great IPA stories or other great case studies are basically people understanding, uh, how effective various things are, you know, so a classic example would be, so we've talked about history for Hovis, you know, um, I mean, that won the IPA Grand Prix um, 10 years ago. And when you think about um, a brand icon, for instance, there's loads of data about, and I'm sure we've all seen it, about how, you know, having branded assets um, are, it, it increases the, the likelihood of um, advertising success. Um, but so many companies just ignore their branded assets and don't do that. They don't realize, in fact, they're almost a bit embarrassed about these sort of what they might see as these cheesy, you know, old fashioned advertising icons. And so they don't realize how lucky they are to have one of those things. And so sometimes effectiveness is just appreciating how lucky you are to have these, um, these aspects within your business that can increase your effectiveness. And, uh, the IPA, I actually think I did a piece for work with this where I went through some of the best papers in the IPA database and and um, and pointed out the kind of lucky breaks that they'd all had, along with obviously huge amounts of hard work and, and talent. But, you know, a lot of them had that little lucky break. Yeah. 
Great. Well, um, thank you for inspiring us. I mean, it feels like we can now go to our work with some fresh eyes and see, you know, what's maybe staring us right in the face. Um, so I appreciate you taking the time to chat with us today. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed it too. And I, I hope uh, everyone has a really lucky year. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Andy. Cheers. Thank you. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Grow Up. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, share this episode and leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts.